This is Adam Lippi, writer, editor, publisher of RegrettableSincerity.com, and this is my interview with Tim League, who runs the Alamo Draft House in Austin, Texas, and also runs Fantastic Fest, which is his genre festival he's run for the last eight years. Uh, it's also run out of Austin, Texas. This discussion was recorded around November of 2010, and it came about because of my interview with Chris Morris, because Mr. League was helping distribute Chris Morris's film Four Lions in the U.S., and as well as he has a producer tag on the film Red, White, and Blue. And I've interviewed the lead actress in the film, Amanda Fuller, about the film quite in detail. You can listen to that podcast. There are a number of things that come up that may seem random or without context whatsoever. So I direct you to regrettablesincerity.com, the uh, Tim League post, if you're hearing this through iTunes and not directly through my site, where you will see the particular references to Viva Chiba and the Wonder Bread image, as well as the whiteness factor of the Alamo Draft House's clientele. You'll also hear a lot of my references to battles I've had with other interviewees and critics. It may sound like I'm doing a lot of whining, which you are allowed to have as opinion because I agree with you. I think it's still a very good interview about reaching specific audiences and responsibilities within the film-going community. We talk about quite a bit of detail. The trailer collection that they put out, 42nd Street Forever Volume 5, Alamo Drafthouse Cinema, that came out in 2009, that Tim and his colleagues put together for a commentary on. And then the the reason I wanted to interview Tim in the first place is because of when I started Medium Rare Cinema, I wanted a sense of how to run a repertory theater where you're just showing older films and how to reach it. So we discuss the best way to do that, talk about the marketing of Four Lions, whether someone will ever pick up Love Exposure by Song Sono, which they did, all the films that pick it up a couple of years ago, hyperbolic critics, and a number of other topics. So please enjoy. I should ask if, before you go to sleep every night, do you start singing yourself Viva Chiba? <laughs> no, but I, I, I do like that trailer. The movie actually is a little less entertaining than the trailer leads you on to believe. But, uh... I, uh, I actually have that on VHS, so I know how, how not entertaining it is. I think I only own it because someone said, oh, that's where Tarantino got his quote from that Sam Jackson does in Pulp Fiction. And that's true, but it doesn't really help the movie one way or the other. No, it's okay, you know, but you watch the trailer and you think, this is going to be the best thing ever, and it's just really not, but... Well, <laughs> no striking against Sonny Chiba, though. That's, I mean, that's true of all that stuff, and I guess, how do you weigh that? I mean, one of the things I did want to ask you was about the overall viewpoint of these trailer compilations, in which... You and I both know, having seen a lot of these movies, that 99% of them are unwatchable. <laughs> and there is a gem here and there within, like, you know, you put on that trailer compilation. I've seen Mad Monkey Kung Fu. That movie's great, for what it is, anyway. But most of it is just, you know, pretty unwatchable. Do you feel weird putting it in a trailer compilation knowing that the movie's a piece of shit? No, definitely not, because I'm also a fan of the art of the trailer, too. And I think that that's an important skill. And... The trailer was an effective piece of work in that it made probably both you and I watch the movie in the first place. So the trailer compilation in and of itself was supposed to be an entertaining work in and of itself. And so whether the films are good or bad was a bit irrelevant to our choices on the trailer comp. And do you own the Wonder Bread robe from Lucky 7 or not? <laughs> no, I don't. But that movie is actually pretty fun. I did seek out that movie after. 
after watching the trailer. We had the trailer first, but I found a VHR copy of Lucky Seven. That's actually pretty crazy. I mean, there's the long extended fight scenes and you can seeing little kids get hurt, which is what was important about that film. Right, and you said that in the half-hour documentary that you think that watching kids getting beaten up is fun. Um, <laughs> that's what you said, basically. Um, you know, that was what was most important. Now, I guess I have two questions. First, I can understand how you feel because I wrote a review of Up, which I titled the review Terrifying Children of All Ages. Um, because when I saw it, and it was not even a 3D screening, everyone around me, including my girlfriend sitting next to me, were in tears within 15 minutes. Because it's a very well-made movie, but that first 10 minutes of opening montage of miscarriages and cancer and death and beating up guys with your cane and bleeding heads and taking away the... I mean, Jesus, that's a little oppressive for everyone with respect to the crazy. Yeah, I had a I had a similar experience, and just I mean, they pushed all the buttons, and I'm I'm a little bit susceptible to crying in movies anyway, and this is literally bawling in the first five minutes, and they knew exactly what they were doing, and I thought that would have been a fun thing to do. <laughs> well, I don't doubt it, but what was funny is that I wrote that review a long time ago, but then I eventually, when I started writing for Examiner, I put the review up there when it came out on DVD, and everyone started criticizing me for saying that it was traumatizing. They also didn't get that my review is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, that I think that terrifying children of all ages is exactly what movies should be. But at the same time, you know, while you, you said that, and I can understand that, how do you feel about sort of the inherent, and I refer to it as phony white boy nihilism, in a lot of these films that are exploitation, like the, the current nerd reaction to it, if that makes sense, like as in, oh, it's awesome because this person gets killed and this is, it's awesome that it's the end of the world, kind of that kind of stuff which it's almost scared reaction in a way because it's like not dealing with the violence. It's like watching Story of Ricky and realizing that if the movie were competent in any way, it would be the most appalling movie ever made. <laughs> mm, so funny white boy nihilism. Right. Um, and that's different from what Armand White calls hipster nihilism. It's very different. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Like, did you see Heckler, the documentary uh, Jamie Kennedy made about how... Critics gave some of the mass bad reviews? I have not seen it, no. Okay. Anyway, there's a critic in there who is like all cartoonishly, ha, 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 I gave it a bad review, and yeah, I said you're a horrible, I said you were a rape baby, and blah, 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 and, you know, Devin Faraci said something similar, and, and I'm thinking, I know you're going over the top for effect, but at what point is it related at all to the, oh, my God, this is so cool, nihilism of some of the more outrageous exploitation films, which are not so bad they're funny. That's so complicated a question that... I'm still kind of wrangling with it, you know, because I, I myself like to find myself entertained by unexpected violence, and I like that reaction. Maybe that's because I'm an ironic white boy, I don't know, but... Oh, I, I'm an ironic white boy, too. It's, I'm, not, I'm, I'm including myself in this, in this question. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, but I'm, I'm trying to digest it in a way, because I'm, I'm thinking of a couple of examples where the first one that I'm thinking about was being in the theater and watching the new Lars von Trier film, Antichrist. Right. And I thought both the introduction of the talking fox and the extreme gratuitous violence at the end were falling into that sort of ironic white boy nihilism in a way. I thought that he was doing it to 
to kind of screw with the art house audience because he had built up this very serious drama and then unexpectedly put in these punctuation marks of what I thought, what I read as comedy. I read it as deliberately confusing. Like, the kind of, I I think I wrote about it that it's a parable about the idiocy of reading into parables. (laughs) Yeah, which I read as comedy. So I think we're... (laughs) Right, so, but Gloria Von Trier is so arrogant, and yeah. I mean, he does himself no favors in the five instructions, but I think makes him look worse than he even is. Um, right. With that whole um, thing where he makes um, the guy shoot the short film in front of all those very poor Indian people. Well, so I, I appreciate that reaction. I like that reaction. Mm-hmm. But the one I was thinking about where it kind of turned the tables was Serbian film this year, right. where it leads the ironic white boys down this path, and you're like, oh my god, ha ha ha, this is funny, funny, funny. But then after it gets so deep and so dark, then I think the kind of underlying cinematic message takes over, and you sort of feel sick about yourself for laughing and for finding humor in these this over-the-top violence, and it kind of, it starts taking the comedy and then pushing you into real emotions. Well, is that is that kind of the opposite of what Funny Games does, in a sense? I think Funny Games is kind of in a middle ground. I think Funny Games is kind of not as effective. But, but yeah, I don't know if it's the exact opposite or not. But let me just say, I guess, that I think that the reaction of willfully surprising your audience with uh, unexpected violence is totally acceptable to me and appreciated. And then doing it unwillfully by making a relatively straight-faced movie, but, you know, in the exploitation sense. I, I like it all. I, I don't know if I want to analyze it, I guess. I, well, it'll, it'll I ruin everything if you, if you think about it too much. <laughs> I, I think I appreciate so many different things when it comes to exploitation films. I like a lot of them, and I, and I like the hunt and looking for the gem. Mm-hmm. And I think I can let a film that maybe has some warts and flaws and sort performance and budget issues that is trying to get real emotions out of you. I tend to actually go to get those real emotions and overlook some of the funny ha-ha, how inept you are moments. And I think it depends on how you're watching it, too. I don't mind it when an audience, you know, bursts into laughter while watching something, you know, about something that's inept, because they're entitled to have their reaction. But I tend to not want to be too aloof or above the exploitation movies of the drive-in grindhouse, if you will, era. Well, how do you react to something like the remake of Last House on the Left, which is grim for almost entire running time, and then has that bizarre scene in a microwave? I'll be honest that I didn't really care for Last House on the Left. That seemed more like it was exploitation in the wrong the original or, so, or, or one of them? I, no, I would say the, the, the remake. Okay. I still, I mean, I'm going to give a, a pass to the, to the original, but I don't think that the emotion resonated enough in the remake, and it was more about reveling in the violence and the kills than anything else. That was difficult for me, you know, because we played it at the festival. And, hey, um, I, I interviewed uh, Tony Goldwyn recently, and that was the question I asked him, even though he was promoting conviction. So I said, what do you, I said, what do you know about microwaves that I don't? Because I could never use a microwave with a door open, pretty sure. And then he was, like, trying to defend it, and he said, oh, it was a macabre twist. And then eventually he gave up defending and said, I just did what I was told. <laughs> well, that's fair enough, isn't it? And I'm not trying to get you to say, oh, I just did what I was told. I was curious, like, what he actually thinks, because, it, you know, it doesn't act a lot, and he wanted to direct, and Conviction was a movie he wanted to get produced. Think what you may have 
conviction, it's clear that it's something he wanted to make and the money was there and then it wasn't and then six or seven years go by. So you can understand him being in a cheesy remake. Right. I mean, I don't even get, like, I asked Daniel Francesi when he was making the uh, Spinner and Grave remake, I said, what would a good version of this movie even look like? And he really couldn't give me an answer. And he was shooting it at the time, but he was he was trying to talk it up, and, but he couldn't say too much because they were still shooting it. But there was this whole thing where he, you know, well, it was, it was tasteful, and we'll still get an R rating, but it's explicit, but it's not exploited. You know, I'm like, but, I, yeah, you can't have all of those lines. Like, it's one or the other. And I don't even know what a good version of most rape... I don't even know what a good version of Rape Revenge movie looks like. Like an actual quality film. I'm not talking like Death Wish 2, which is terrible, but sort of entertaining and it's how appalling it is. Irreversible is not a Rape Revenge movie, really, but right. sort of is. Right. Um, that's a good one. I think, for me, right now, to go... If you want to go hard in that subject material, which I have no problem doing, mm-hmm. I really feel like you have to have some real strong depth into the characters and, you know, maybe some complexity in your storytelling, just, you know, real filmmaking chops. Otherwise, you know, that storyline for me has been hashed out over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, the closest I can think of is, like, the female comic Scorpion movies, but they're not really rape revenge movies, per se. That's just an element of them. I mean, I guess the third one is just, like, one big attempted rape scene after another. But still, like, they're women in prison movies that that have an element of rape, and the revenge isn't necessarily direct to the person doing the raping. And those, you know, those a lot of times, I think, live on just the sheer style quotient. Right, um, and those, you know, those are standard movies that are uh, directing is astounding, and cinematography is great. On- yeah, if you were going to get somebody to a different movie, obviously, but in different subject material, but uh, why a lot of people are, are fixated with the movie House these days, House 2, mm-hmm. just because it's gone out of this traditional narrative, and it, it's just bizarre, but still just somehow crazily entertaining. I think there's a million ways to make a movie fresh, right? But I think you have to set out to, to make it fresh. I, I continually get surprised that there's a new way to make a zombie movie fresh, for example. I watch hundreds of zombie movies, and every once in a while, hey, look at that. Somebody's done something new again. That's really awesome. When, when was the last time that happened, though? Like Really awesome? <laughs> I still kind of like, even though it's... Uh, derivative of not setting any not really groundbreaking but I, I still kind of like Zombieland that's what I was yeah no that works I mean it has it has moments yeah. where it thinks it's more clever than it really is but yeah I guess mm-hmm. for a relatively studio film it yeah I guess mm-hmm. so I mean I, I had to I, think, I had to think back to like uh, what about that short I saw a few years ago at a festival with the three guys in a car in Australia being attacked by zombies it's called Zombie. That was all right. I, I love you, Sarah Jane. I don't know if you saw that one. No, that I was brilliant. It's uh, the guy that directed Hesher. Oh, I like Hesher actually a lot. Uh, check check out his short online. Okay, that's another one that's like okay, that's great because it ends up being more of a adolescent romance, but this zombie thing happening in the background, which uh, is very sweet, very pretty. And it's obvious why he directed Hesher. He was actually up for the Let the Right One In remake, too, because of his work on this short. Oh, you know, regardless, I think Matt Reeves did a terrific job. That's a much, much yes, better movie yeah. than I thought it would be. Um, Me, too. I really liked it. Yeah, I mean, I defend Cloverfield as just like a good experiment, but Let Me In really has a look and a, that's a little different from the original. And it's, I guess, you know, the camera work was so assured. I was surprised by, like, the willingness to establish the E.T. vibe to it without being derivative. <laughs> well, I mean, not only does the kid look like Elliot, the whole thing is framed from his perspective. Yeah. 
But I guess I was going to ask about red, white, and blue because part of what I talked to Amanda about, I admitted that I didn't think the movie was terrific, but I was not bored. Part of what I asked is because I think it falls within the phony white boy nihilism thing. And my definition of phony white boy nihilism is what Ben Folds was talking about in the song Rock in the Suburbs. You'll have to explain that one. I'm not a Ben Folds fan. Okay. Let me tell y'all what it's like Being male, middle class, and white It's a bitch if you don't believe Listen up to my new CD, Shamon. Well, it basically was the guy who, the lead singer of Korn. He said about Ben Folds that he makes quote-unquote fucking Cheers music. And Ben Folds agreed, but then he wrote this song called Rock in the Suburbs, which is about, you know, being an angry white boy in the suburbs. Uh, railing against, uh, I don't know. Rock in the suburbs, it's just like Michael Jackson did. Rock in the suburbs, he said that he was talented. Rock in the suburbs. Stuff. And the phony white boy nihilism is born out of the middle class anger, but not being able to find what to be angry at, and so searching for anything to be angry at. Often, like, it seems strange that you're angry at it. And sometimes it comes out in exploitation films, sometimes it comes out in any number of things. But anyway, in uh, Red, White, and Blue, for two acts, I thought it was a terrific movie about this woman, and I didn't know where it was going at all. But Red, White, and Blue then switches to what's unfortunately described as torture porn. And I didn't think it was very fair to its own movie. Like, it had to somehow satisfy someone's urges of that they were coming in and they couldn't see a very serious drama about a nymphomaniac who doesn't care who she sleeps with. And it has to be a torture movie. Well, I have a small amount of involvement in Red, White, and Blue. but Right. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not expecting you to go, absolutely right. I'm just taking my money out of it. <laughs> I don't know. I will say that I think the movie does have some faults. I don't love it myself, but I do like it. And the violence, um, I don't think, for me, it falls into sort of the white boy nihilism that you're trying to describe. But I buy it in Red, White, and Blue. There's some weird aspects of those scenes that I don't buy, mainly... You know, after he's abducted Amanda and has a weird sort of like, I want to fall in love with you moment. Oh, um, agree. I didn't buy any of that. And I thought it was funny that, you know, she seemed to be fucking her way through the cast of the Warriors, and then suddenly the cast of the Warriors wants to live with her? Um, yeah, so, so that moment didn't really ring with me, but I did like and want the violence at that point. And I did like the turn at the end with Noah Taylor the reveal that the relationship had gotten to a greater point that they were actually, in fact, married. And Yeah, that's that stuff's so, fine, but what does that have to do with ending up in a garbage bag? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think it's... Um, that's, a, it, that's why I was questioning, is like, that's a different movie. That's someone else's movie. But it's not that unreasonable to expect that something went horribly wrong with the abduction scenario and that he screwed up and has to get rid of the body. And then once they've screwed up the abduction scenario, a guy like Doug Taylor can go off the rails and go on a revenge. Yeah, I'm not even, I'm not even doubting, I'm not doubting, I'm not doubting that it's possible. I'm just doubting that mm-hmm. it's a different movie. You know, you invest us in the characters for an hour, and we're into it, and it's different, and it's unpredictable. And then 
all of a sudden the person we've been invested with, whether we take to Amanda's character or not, we're certainly interested, is just taken off screen and then we don't really see her. And then she's in a garbage bag and then we just deal with sort of standard stuff. Standard gross-out material. Standard torture, revenge stuff. And it, it's certainly, it doesn't look like, like I think I was talking about the ending of the Bad Lieutenant thing with um, Nicolas Cage. That mm-hmm. it was so inappropriate that the last that the last three, I don't know, did you see it? Uh, I saw it and I loved it though. So I'm curious to see what you're going, where you're going on, on um, uh, Bad Lieutenant. The, the ending where for some reason all of the plot points are tied up in basically about a minute when he's in the police station at the end, and then we get the the dreaded one year later, everyone's got different length hair, different color, different weight, everyone's happy sort of thing that doesn't fit at all. That screams reshoot, and I think I, you know, it was like they brought in Chris Columbus to finish the movie or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I suppose I'm, I'm not going to judge the crazy, weird roller coaster ride of that movie by the... Yeah, I agree that that last minute's not necessarily... Um, Satisfying, <laughs> but I'm not even sure. The, the, I'm not even sure of the point. Shot at the, yeah. I mean, I said that it was like if you'd watch Schindler's List and it ended with like a, a musical performance by the Muppets. <laughs> well, if there's one movie that's earned the right to kind of stop on a dime and do something unexpected, I guess Bad Lieutenant should probably be that one to give a pass to. I mean, but was her like doing it for any other reason than a deal? I mean, that's kind of what it seemed like. I mean, the whole thing looked like. Like a backroom deal, we shoot this in three weeks, producers are involved. Uh, we got Val Kilmer because he already did one with Avi Lerner called Streets of Blood, and then now we'll go make some movies in New Mexico for him. And now I get to finish, you know, My Son, My Son, What Have You Done, which is what I really want to do. <laughs> it very well could be. Um, <laughs> it very well could be part of the constraints of making that film. And I, I think you're one of maybe five people who could follow the logic of what I just said. but. <laughs> Bad Lieutenant is following the tradition of being something of an exploitation film because, you know, maybe there were constraints on Herzog and maybe that, you know, it had to be tied up with the bow in order for him to get the funding to do it. But what he was able to do in 89 out of the 90 minutes was spectacularly free. And it was clearly his vision and the deranged vision of him and Nicholas Cage just... I think you're giving a little too much credit because it was—it's about a two-hour and ten-minute movie, and that last section, yeah, that last section is about twenty minutes. Huh. Well, maybe I'm not so. Uh, yeah. The last. So, by the last section, you mean just uh, after all the all the action has gone down and Nicholas Cage back at back at work and then going to the. And, uh, and then to so, the yeah, uh, he goes back at work and then some guy says, "Oh, well, you don't have to worry about your gambling debt. Oh, you don't have to worry about this." You know. <laughs> And I thought, well, what's going on? Like, it doesn't even matter if you wrap this stuff up. It's irrelevant. So I, that's where my confusion was. That, that's what I'm getting at in terms of uh, Red, White, and Blue, though. Like, I get that that last half hour is possible, but it's not the same movie that the first hour... And it's not... It's, it seems just random. It seemed like a complete tonal change for the wrong reasons. And I've never been able to figure out... You know, what kind of reason it would be there other than as a, well, we have to freak out the audience who would go see this. Otherwise, our shot on video movie with no stars in particular is not going to get distributed. Well, I I mean, I think there may be two issues at play. I mean, first, I'm a fan of this, and I have to assume that Simon is a a fan as well of the unexpected turn in a movie 
be it from Martyrs when the staircase reveal or be it from Dust Till Dawn when, you know, the movie stops on a dime and becomes an entirely different movie. I love both of those turns. Yeah, but in, 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 in the last case you give, it was a financial decision. You remember from Dust Till Dawn, it was about the fact that he was writing it for Bob Kurtzman and Kurtzman needed it there to be a gore movie so he could put all his gore effects in there to justify the expense. I don't think that's the only reason that it plays out the way it plays out. At that stage in their career, they could make anything that they wanted to, but they liked the story, and I I think they liked that turn. But wasn't he being paid, Tarantino being paid by Kurtzman, to make some sort of gory vampire zombie whatever they're going with? You can make a gory uh, zombie vampire movie and not spend the first 45 minutes being a pretty straight-ahead crime caper movie with no zombies, vampires. I mean, that moment in the film, I, would ha- I don't know this for a fact, but I would have to assume that that moment in the film is their favorite moment when everything turns bonkers unexpectedly and seemingly out of nowhere. So in one, on one sense, I think it's a desire to, to make the unexpected turn into, into dark territory, whether it's a, you know, a drama or an action-y vampire movie. But I don't think, from my perspective on Red, White, Blue, you're spending the first... 45 minutes trying to get a grasp on what the hell's going on with this movie anyway, what the hell's going on with this girl, what what is the storyline, what's the, you know, so it leaves you in this sort of confused state. And yeah, I don't think the violence is all that necessarily all that extreme. I guess maybe it is for an audience that's been led to the table for uh, more or less a character-driven drama. Right, so. it's out of balance with, with what the first part of the movie is. It's not. I'm not saying like, oh my God, I was so offended. I mean, you know, I saw Enter the Void the night before, and it's not like sure. you know, one is more, you know, th- that's clearly more extreme. But in, in the sense that it's it's out of whack and it's such a tonal change that I felt let down and I didn't feel, like, tricked in a good way. I just felt <laughs> felt that it was lazy and an easy way to get out of some potentially really interesting situation. And I don't know why you have to get away from Noah Taylor and Amanda why, why go away from that? Like, why not, you know, if you're going to make the movie, I mean, we're not worried about a rating at this point. I mean, we're well into an R. So we're not worried about, like, satisfying a specific audience who like to watch Andrew Bullock movies. So that's, that's, that's the confusion point for me. Perhaps, and, you know, again, I'm not part of the creative process. I'm just analyzing it the same way that you'd be analyzing it. But I do know that Simon is in large measure a genre film director. So I think that he's coming to this project as a genre film, as a film that's got violence elements into it. And I think that that's the, that's the, maybe the, the scene that's jarring is the seed of the story and then building up and maybe unexpectedly sweet romance story between Noah Taylor and Amanda to, to frame it on the back end of the front end is... His, his spin on doing a, a serial killer type movie. I don't know. A guy like Noah Taylor, who's obviously somewhat damaged goods, you know, going on a killing rampage, could be done in a lot of different ways as a, a more traditional, balanced, if you will, film. But I thought it was kind of interesting to have it out of balance. I can't necessarily convince you that my feeling on the matter is, is correct and yours is incorrect, but I think I, I, balance wasn't necessarily what he was going for, and whether or not he's successful in making it, making the tone shift, I guess a matter of opinion, but I think that he wasn't trying to make it balanced, for sure. Well, uh, how are you involved in the process? You have a... In Red, White, and Blue? Yeah. I'm a friend of Simon's, and so 
with his last movie, Living in the Dead, he played Fantastic Fest in 2006. And he won all sorts of awards, and we became friends and stayed in touch. And he liked the city of Austin. He wrote the script for Red, White, and Blue. Said he wanted to shoot it in Austin and asked if I'd like to get involved. And I, I told him that, uh, which is what I tell almost everybody, that I never put money into movies. But since he's a friend, I can help him navigate Austin. So I arranged for all the locations, the catering, the extras, the vehicles, the local helped him find local crew, and then the cast and the crew stayed at my house for you know, maybe 10 weeks. So I'm not an investor in the movie. But you actually, but you know, if, if someone were to ask me what producing is, you just described it, so. Yeah. <laughs> but that said, I, I made it easy for him to work in Austin. But there was, you know, Bob Fordle's producer. I served as an executive producer, I guess, uh, which can mean a lot of different things. But basically what I did is I helped out a friend with his project and made it easy for him to shoot an Austin film in Austin. And I do that for any handful of Fantastic Fest veterans that I've become friends with over the years. So I was not I was not involved creatively in the film, really, at all. I, I read the script in advance. I gave him my thoughts on the ending, which was subsequently changed, but a lot of people gave him the same notes on the ending. I don't feel like that was my, my creative stamp at all. What, what, more what was the it. ending before? The first, and it's, I don't know if it's fair to, to judge a movie on its first draft ending because it went through six or seven more drafts after that. But the No, just like plot-wise, like how was it different? Plot-wise, it wasn't that much different except for the relationship between Amanda and Noah gets a little it gets a lot more fleshed out on both the front and the back end and the back end he's not married to her the back end is just that he was some sort of escaped mental asylum type patient you know there's a little bit more cliched uh. so I think he built up the relationship more um, they were still friends in the movie and they were still they still were developing a bond and his bond was more of a protective nature of her mm -hmm. but they didn't actually cross any barriers actually falling in love well actually, I, in, in that sense actually i think that works a little better but regardless i was willing to go with the movie even if their relationship does develop based on her confusion about being molested and all that stuff and on the uh the documentary you discuss all the legal ramifications that well actually you don't that's what i was with uh arguing with russ meyer and ralph bakshi and all and all the other people and it seems almost like <laughs> how how to not set up a movie theater to continue profiting on it <laughs> which is fine i thought it was entertaining but were there not necessarily if you can't discuss it fine but the, the were there legal ramifications for any of these sort of dealings whether it was showing trailers to unsuspecting audiences who were there to watch a reese witherspoon movie and got a hicks quotation <laughs> movie and... were there legal ramifications no i mean they were just like and the Reese Witherspoon issue that was just uh, being too busy and I used to allocate all the trailers and on, on top of you know doing all the other managerial things so I think all I did really was just piss off 10 people at that first show of uh, Sweet Home Alabama okay. um, because and, I'm, you know, I'm thinking like oh I didn't know I didn't know what the trailers were and I'm thinking you didn't screen it before just to figure out what it was you just threw a trailer on there because it was similar in subject matter uh, yep, yeah, it's just sheer laziness. Oh, you know, okay. I, I, I wouldn't call it laziness. Maybe I would call it being overly stretched. And so, <laughs> I don't know. I uh, I like recounting business mistakes. But, you know, if, if putting a, uh, a fake trailer, an inappropriate trailer in front of a Reese Witherspoon is one of your larger business mistakes over 12 years, I don't feel too bad. 
too terrible. That, no, no, no. I, I mean, again, uh, it's not a, it's not a criticism. It's just that the the, the thirty minute documentary that's I guess supposed to promote the theater does everything to promote the theater. It shows you all the reasons that if you didn't know what it was already, you wouldn't want to go. Well, let's uh, I guess put that in perspective of is my audience for the trailer compilation the people that are going to see you know Sweet Home Alabama, or are they um, people for the trailer compilation the audience that thinks that there's some sort of weird perverse <laughs> uh, comedy in the fact that a situation like that results from being an exploitation trailer collector. So it's more sort of the power of the of the trailers of days gone by, and and how how that was how that was funny to unexpectedly place that into a modern, a completely inappropriate modern setting. Well, yeah, I, I got all the subjects with it. It wasn't. It's not a question of oh, I didn't get it. Please explain. I know. I'm not. I'm not saying that you don't get it, but it's just like. But the intended. I'm saying to the intended audience, like. I think that they would find the humor in the situation that I found myself in rather than, you know, identify. You're asking them by that statement to identify with the customer that's coming in to see Sweet Home Alabama, which, granted, is, is part of our customer base, right. but it's not the customer base that's picking up 42nd Street forever. Right. I think they like, they like hearing st- stories of <laughs> tawdriness or uh, also of, you know, I think the... Um, they like to, right to they get to yeah, they like air. to rock the suburbs is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> because because the paleness of the crowd interviewed was was certainly noted by me, but that's all right. <laughs> yeah, that's our that's our demographic. Anyway, no, I, I figured it was, and that's kind of what I was getting at is that is is a, a bunch of people who who have not been downtrodden relishing the downtrodden. <laughs> Uh, as, as, as when I made a music video in college, and I, uh, I I went to a private college, so it was not cheap. And I said, "Does anyone want to play a hooker in a music video?" And thirty girls came right up to me and said, "Oh, I want to do it because they could dress up in slum, you know." Well, I I wonder in my own in my own personal fascination with uh, with black exploitation films and films that are set you know in Harlem in the seventies, things mm-hmm. uh, things like that. I mean, there is a certain sense in just watching a completely foreign culture and a completely foreign world and set of attitudes that's strangely exotic. Yeah, but but even it depends on what you're talking about because Shaft is just a white movie with black people in it. Yeah, I wouldn't be talking about Shaft. Not one of my favorite black exploitation films. Superfly is is, is a white movie with black people in it. I mean, all of the ones, you know... I, well, I, I, I talked to the guy who made Black Dynamite, which was not one of my favorites because I think that it's, I didn't like it either. I think but. it's kind of lazy, actually. I think that mm-hmm. I think that to replicate it is fine, but I don't know what distinguishes you from the epic movie guys, other than there's less people being kicked in the balls. There's nothing in my book. I, I'm, I'm pretty adamantly against that film um, because I think for the same reason, it's because I. It's disingenuous. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm a maybe I'm a you know a white boy boyer to black exploitation, but at least I know this stuff really, really well. Right. And uh, what what I get out of it is that sense of guys that are really going for it and make some really incredible movies and are really funny and have some great character interactions. And you know, that basically they were just reveling in how easy it is to to make jokes about how low rent these movies were, and that's not really the point. Um, And it's also it's also so easy to do. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, what's funny in interviewing them, and 
the podcast interview with Scott Sanders and Michael J. White. Michael J. White got a little, there, were, there were other people, you know, there, but Michael J. White was really pissed off at something I said. <laughs> I know they, they they courted me for for a long time to play, and I wish I never played it. And I just the source material is important to me, and I I just didn't. I found the movie uh, wrong on its notes. So well, I think it's a difference but, between people who think Entourage is cool and Entourage is embarrassing. <laughs> Well, in, in terms of, is it relishing the lifestyle? Should it be relished? Aren't these people idiots? Why are we supporting this? Why is the you know there's you know why is the writing so bad on the show when it could be just as good as it wanted to be? You know why? It's the difference between your audience and the frat audience who might like Black Dynamite, right. and that is kind of what I guess some of my questions were going towards the f- frat appreciation, which I guess some of went into Scott Pilgrim too. The isn't it cool to be a nerd thing, which becomes mainstream and therefore you're not a nerd anymore. That I think is part of Black Dynamite. Because Scott Sanders admits in the interview in front of four or five of us that he didn't know anything about black exploitation movies before making that movie. Well, then he shouldn't have made that movie. Oh, I agree. Yeah. He said, you know, <laughs> Michael came to me with a script and he told me about all this stuff and, you know, and I, and I was thinking, you know, I asked, I said, well, did you, I mean, there's some stuff in there that I appreciate, but I have no idea if it's intentional because I wrote a paper in college about how the character of Shaft is an ironic name because all he does is misuse his own Shaft. And how the movie stacks the deck, and how the the ending of the movie. In fact, you talked about it in one of the commentary for the trailers. Not Shaft, but in a similar way that there's all this planning, and then what's the what's the eventual thing? Well, they swing in through you know with a rope and through a window. After we get 15 oh, minutes yeah. set up yeah. of like wearing you know waiters uniforms and all this stuff, and then what's the, how do we how do we deal with this? <laughs> well, we we swing through the window. <laughs> So I ask about that, and and the fact that essentially, and this is what Michael J. White didn't like, Shaft is an Uncle Tom. If you watch the movie, he's continuously accused of it. But if you think about the context of the movie, they're right. Because what does he do? He cheats on his righteous black girlfriend with white women. For no reason, as far as we can tell. Other than the opportunity was there. He is constantly selling himself out to the white man, even if he puts on a front that he's not. And the way they try to align him with black culture is by stacking the deck, by having random racist white characters show up and call him names. Right. So that seemed that's kind of what pissed off Michael J. White, because there I was saying it, and probably, you know, didn't like the term Uncle Tom coming from a white person, but still. <laughs> probably not. The point is valid, I think. But that is that is the, the the merging of nerd audience and where's the line between appreciation and condescension and irony? And I guess I'm yeah. asking you that because well, I don't know. I don't know. But the problem the problem with me is is that I I still like I still like irony. You know, I still like elements of the so bad it's good. Even though I don't like to champion it, I'll still find myself chuckling at it. But it's not really enough for me to to make it a favorite film. Uh, you know, favorite exploitation film. I, I like. The unexpected, gems, the unexpected moments, and you know the freedom in the scripts, and interesting choice of subject material. So those supersede. But I can't, I can't help myself, but still laugh when there's something inept, and I'm, I'm laughing at. A, Aren't we better than you by making this film? I mean, I just don't like it to be front and center. How do 
how do you see something like Best Worst Movie? Because my friends and I had analyzed Troll 2 a long time ago. So when Best Worst yeah. Movie was in production, I spoke with, I guess, theoretical producers of it. And they showed them like where we had this you know really thorough analysis of Troll 2. Now, obviously, Troll 2 is sort of a uniquely terrible movie. And there are... There are is very little way. I think you mentioned a movie in the commentary that I think is the same. Not Ninja Terminator, but the the Filipino RoboCop ripoff that I'm trying to remember. Lady Terminator. Uh, Lady Terminator, yeah. Which I saw at a 24-hour film festival, a science fiction festival, and the audience who was there to watch like Deep Space Nine type type stuff did not know how to react. And <laughs> one guy came up to me. I was not part of the process. I was just a critic there writing about it who was poking me with a stick and trying to get people to shut up during Lady Terminator. Now, there is no way to take Lady Terminator seriously. It, right. it, it's impossible. And he didn't quite understand that. But watching Best Worst Movie, I now get what he was upset about. Because Best Worst Movie seems pretty condescending to me. Because the people are there, and the director, the stuff with Claudio Fragamini is the most interesting material. Because... There is an inherent sadness in someone who doesn't understand, and there's a language issue, and everybody else is like, "Hey, you know, you guys suck, right?" And he doesn't get it. And and the rest of the movie, I mean, I guess you can't really, you know, talk shit about it because, you know, a lot of your crowd were in it. So yeah, I was in it for a bit. <laughs> but do you kind of get what I'm pushing at here, or not really? I. I I do, I do, um, because, uh, you know, there's something that's not even, it's not even in the film, but uh, Michael told me about it when he shot it with the first screening they did in L.A., and they brought Claudio Fragasso in to, to see it. Oh, I said Fragamini, I'm thinking of a boxer, Fragamini, but Fragasso, that's what I meant, sorry. And Michael is with Claudio, and they're watching it, and, you know, the crowds are erupting in laughter, and, he, like, Claudio leans over to Michael and says, like, Michael, I don't understand, why are they laughing? It's not funny. And so... He was pretty upset in the beginning, but I think, and it doesn't really fully come across in the film. What I thought was most interesting about Claudio is that his ego wouldn't really let him be the butt. And so by the end of the interviews, by the time we did that event in Utah with the Castro Crew Union back in Nilbog, Claudio was basically saying, you know, we knew exactly what we were doing. We were making a great American comedy, you know. And oh, he pulled a, he pulled a, he pulled a, a whiz out, did he? Yes, he did. He did. So that's kind of fascinating. But yes, there's an inherent sadness in poking a stick at the creators of Troll 2. I think there's um, there's enough warmth in there, and I think that the character of uh, George, I forget the actor's name, but the blonde-haired dentist. Right. Like, you, you kind of, you let maybe the mean-spirited, holier-than-now attitude of Troll 2 fans mm-hmm. that are laughing at somebody's legitimate attempt to make a movie. Right, I mean, um, I can understand you know, laughing at it because it is terrible, and it yeah. is, uni- I think, like The Room, there are very few movies that will live up to what people describe and yeah. have no have very few moments that are not out-and-out, outrageously absurd and terrible. Usually there'll be a lot of lulls in a movie like that, a lot of boring stuff, and then every so often something great will happen. But those two, I, kind of, I think, kind of live up to what everybody says about it because they work at home, too. I think Michael came to the movie because he was legitimately surprised and fascinated that there was a subculture of people that were obsessed with this movie and why would they be obsessed with this movie? I don't really know what the point of Best Worst Movie is, but I did think it was really, really entertaining all the way through just to, to get to know the characters behind 
something like Troll 2. I mean, I felt the so, same sadness uh, watching Winnebago Man, but that mm-hmm. that is enough with these smarmy white people and teenagers and hipster or whatever. And I, again, include myself in the smarmy whiteness of this. Um, I don't particularly think that the, what the Winnebago man, like him screaming and cursing, I don't particularly f- think that it was funny because it's just like a guy getting frustrated. I don't know what's so amusing about that. But at the same time, what's interesting about Winnebago man is everything but what the filmmaker thinks he's making. Now, I, to be fair, I haven't seen the last 15 minutes of Winnebago Man, and I understand some interesting things unfold, so I can't really talk to that too much. But it's, um, I felt they were very similar in that the, the sadness is not is so much more interesting than the ha-ha, isn't this guy an idiot, isn't this movie terrible? Like, they, they're, they're cousins, uh, Winnebago Man and Best Worst Movie. Because in a sense, yeah. they're you know, talking about a you know, cultish bit of terrible backwoods yokel ineptitude and either making fun of it or pretending it's profound you know and i I guess you could call it profound or not or whatever you want to do with it but i i I know you haven't seen the last 15 minutes and i realize i'm rambling here sorry um (laughs) i have no i have a copy of it yeah i mean it, it it may change i mean look i felt the same way about the catfish guys so you know, I hated everything about them, but I thought it was an interesting commentary whether it's made up or not. I don't really care if it's made up. I think that it's an interesting commentary on our viewpoint and about the lead character's sexuality. Did you Have you seen Catfish? I have seen Catfish, and um, I, I haven't made up for, in my mind... You know whether I believe how much of it I believe is made up, and I, I'm kind of in the same camp. It doesn't really matter that much to me because if it is made up, they did a pretty good job of of creating a little universe that they wanted to tell a story in, and so that's movie making anyway. I was fascinated most by the unexpected world that they uncover once they finally get to the. But how unexpected is it really, though? I mean, you know, I think part of the movie, and I, I this is how I saw it, but you can obviously disagree. Mm-hmm that a lot of this movie has to do with the fact that he thinks that this girl is not only hot, but a virgin. And he's young and sexually inexperienced, and she won't be able to tell the difference. And so when he finds out it's this, you know, woman who, in his mind, is, you know, it's, there's a very, like, New York is superior attitude. And I am from New York, and I can understand the attitude, but that guy's not the reason why it's superior. He would be one of the reasons to avoid New York. I don't know. He's just, he's, his, his self-indulgent stuff and you know self-love just bothered him. The movie, the movie isn't. I mean, to me, the, the reason why I like and I do like the movie. The reason I like the movie is the the complexity of the persona of the woman that they find. Mm-hmm. I mean, you kind of know that there's going to be something up, and she's not going to be this beautiful girl. And right. you know, obviously, something's going on. Uh, what she's dealing with with her kids and with her relationships and the escape that Facebook is for her. That's. The, I mean. Uh, that was unexpectedly interesting. No, and I agree. Um, and, and, and all the negative things I just yeah. said, I still gave the movie a good review because mm-hmm. most movies don't make you think that much. Right. And I don't, and I don't like people in it, it, so that's fine. I think it's a, even, even though it might be a sort of a smarmy note at the end, I still liked resolving it in a way that ends on a positive as opposed to a negative. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could have ended just being, you know, what the fuck, this lady is bad, she's crazy, let's get out of here. But, you know, leaving it on that sort of, and she's still my friend, you know, maybe it's a little manipulative and Schindler's Whiskey to uh, tears sort of well up in your eyes. But it, it was still did seem, I guess, more compassionate towards your subject material. Well, considering, considering how he presented, like, the husband... Who I guess is supposed to be a slack-jawed yokel, but if you're paying enough attention, he doesn't say anything slack-jawed yokely. 
It's pretty smart, actually. He just doesn't put it in, in, in a, I don't know, concise, direct English, but then neither do I. <laughs> now, what I wanted, you know, I wanted to look at that sort of thing, those three movies, which are, to me, about the same thing. And I don't want it to just be limited to some trend they put in Entertainment Weekly and someone looks back on 2010 is the year of the is it real, is it fake documentary. And, you know, that, that seems facile in a sense. But it, they also share that tone. And I don't know because you're somewhat involved in that, but I, I, does that help or hurt the movie? And do, do you bring in, can you bring in the wrong kind of person to the movie who, who's actually laughing at them as opposed to feeling for them? And we're talking, we're going back to Best Worst? Any of them. I think they're all basically the same story. Either Best Worst or, or uh, Catfish, although I obviously got water distribution, or Winnebago Man. And whether you've seen the last 15 minutes or not, it doesn't matter. I mean, yes, yeah. it matters, but, you know, in the context. I can only really speak to Best Worst because I know more about the production on that one, but Michael was wrangling with thousands of hours of footage, and there's there's any number of tones in a, a movie, a documentary film, right? So you can, you can pluck out the 90 minutes that makes your narrative pass. Right. Um, so I think that whatever tone was taken was willful from from Michael and I think it was I, I think it was important for him to portray a little bit of laughing at Claudio and the Italians but I think more of what he was trying to go I mean it's just it's just there as a little bit of a background context but it was it ended up being more about a, a movie about George than anything else, I thought. No, I agree. I mean, and if you focused on George and Claudio, I think that's a better movie than, you know, padding it with 45 minutes of crowd sequences. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no, no judgments on what Michael decided to do with it, I understand. Because I think you have to... Maybe I'm a little more biased because I know a lot about the movie. I wish... Granted, I don't take it very seriously, but when is... I've written some about it, but when is it going to be taken seriously as the theory is... The great uh, movies made in the '80s about that were anti-vegetable, like Troll Two and Leonard Part Six, <laughs> which I think is a masterpiece in its own way. Um, I have not seen Leonard Part Six. Maybe I should put that on my on my to-do list. Yes, and the fact that the fact that, that they put out like a remastered DVD is astonishing. Um, <laughs> I mean, I went to a I went to a convention once, a horror convention in New York or New Jersey or wherever they one of the one of those chiller theater ones. And, you know, you're supposed to bring all your stuff. And I don't like paying for autographs. This is the only one I've ever paid for. I, I couldn't figure out why he was there, but I brought... I, I saw Leo Rossi there. Do you know that character actor? Leo Rossi? Yeah, uh, he was in Rel- Relentless. The Relentless series is about him. And he's already, like, okay. the, the standard mobster-looking guy. He was in the Analyze This yeah. movie. Okay. Um, very nice, very nice guy. And we're talking for a long time. He really has no reason to be at a horror convention, but they had strange people there. Fine. And I asked if he could sign something a little out of the ordinary, and I pulled out my Leonard Part 6 Laserdisc. And he went nuts because he couldn't believe that someone even recognized that he was in the movie. It's his first first film. And then he, you know, talked about it a little bit, but, you know, mostly he was talking about defending Pamela Anderson from the producers of whatever that, you know, exploitation movie he did with her was. But the point being that, you know... I only had the guy sign the laser disc, not just for, like, because I'd be amused by his reaction, but also because I couldn't imagine that it would ever come out on DVD, but it did. Yeah, I don't know how they got it out of Cosby's hands. But the movie is surreal and connects to the child mind, like, in a way that I think Rodriguez did with Spy Kids 2, mm-hmm. which I think is a 
pretty great kids movie and even an adult movie because it gets to that thing that you used to do when you were a kid where you tell a story and it made no sense to anyone above the age of eight and you would just keep randomly free associating and it would keep getting more creative and crazy and ridiculous and you couldn't follow it but somehow Rodriguez and whether it's intentional or not the makers of Leonard Part 6 found that portal and you will recognize you will recognize and I'm not really overselling it because most of it is inept. A lot of it is weird. Like, you know how the first hour of Howard the Duck is unbelievably weird, and then the second hour yep. is pretty standard, and you could do without it, really? Or maybe you don't think you think the whole thing is... <laughs> I think the, the first like hour is... is weird, but. <laughs> I think the first hour is bizarre, and, like, that could have been a, a, a very different movie if, like, you know, Alex Cox circa Repo Man had been in charge of it. Instead of, you know, William Hayek and whatever her name is. And the second hour is very standard chase sequence stuff. Granted, with a duck in it, but still. Explosions, you know. Not not so just like, I've never seen this before. I mean, you know, you've never seen, like, a, a naked duck while a duck gets blown through the wall in outer space in a bathtub. I mean, that... <laughs> That doesn't happen. But the rest of it was, you know, pretty standard for a mid-80s explosion movie. Uh, but to be fair, I haven't really revisited The Duck since the, since the mid-80s, so I'm a little rusty on that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Around the block from me, there was a video store. I know videos, and part of what I was going to ask about Fantastic Fest is similar. But what you've done with The Draft House is something that I've wanted to do for a long time in small pockets with repertory theaters. But I know that they're going away. And there's a, there's a guy around the corner from me who wants to... I think do that because he owns the movie theater and the video store. But I, well, he doesn't want to do it your way, like with exploitation films and beer. But is there a market for that? Like if you just did art films or you had like an ongoing, like, is that possible? Because I know you want to bring that model to other cities and I wish you could, but is there a way to make money doing it? Uh, in the art house model or my current model? The art house model. Because your model, I can see that there's money in it yeah. with an informed audience. Well, I think it's going to be difficult with the art house model, but definitely not impossible. Because a lot of the things that we've had success with over the years have been because we've had hosts of shows who have personality and who have a knowledge base and who have excitement about a niche subject. And they write about the film and they chat with the audience afterwards and they get email addresses and they form this community and the community grows and grows and grows and becomes stable and becomes money generating. Before I got into the business, our first theater you know, was in Bakersfield, California and there was an organization there called FLIX, F-L-I-C-S, which was basically a film club and they were doing the same thing. They did a long introduction, they wrote notes about the movie, they had coffee afterwards and people chatted about the films they saw. There was all about art house films. Uh, usually pretty far after the break, like they'd play in LA, but then they'd come up to maybe six months later. But they had a very loyal audience. They, did, they couldn't sustain it every night, but they did it a couple times a month. And I think it became kind of a going concern. It's still, it's still in existence today. We've recently started, because we haven't done enough in terms of building up a classic film audience with the Alamo, I mean, in the more true sense of classic films. And so we started up a, a similar type of show called Cinema Club, where, again, people would, we would have a guest speaker to talk and have something a little bit more than just a movie. Mm-hmm. I think if you just, if you're lazy about it and you just show, show whatever, whether it's art films or classic films, and you just pop it up on screen and then everybody goes home and, you know, the presentation isn't great. If you just don't pay attention to the details, then it's never going to resonate. But if you get, 
you get people feeling like they're part of a movement or part of a club or part of a, a scene, then I think you can do it with anything. It's just It just happens that one of my passions was going to be was was exploitation film. No, and I and I think um, that's an easy the, a better way to do it. But the thing being like, how do you like how do you bring what you're trying to do, which is the festival audience, which wa- really want to like the movies. It doesn't matter what they are; they really want to yeah. like them. They're maybe paying a bit extra to see them, and they think it's kind of exclusive. But then I think of like you know, Four Lions played at the festival. Where you know in Philadelphia, but it didn't do terrific business, considering what a great movie it is. And I think of Philip Ridley's movie Heartless didn't even do two grand over the weekend. And and I'm like, who am I writing for? Like, is is there a way to export this? Is it are we in a situation where more critics will see this than people? Because that happens. I'd like to think that I, I, if you put the collective audience of film festival goers together, it's a very large group. Yes. There should be a way to wrangle that voice to be able to, in a unified way, say, listen, America, we're early adopters. We have spoken. This movie is awesome when a, a festival favorite movie breaks out onto the scene, but really hasn't. I think there's, there's there's more of a unified voice within the horror community, for example. Right. I think that there's there's even that hasn't been you know hasn't been great. Right. But, but how do you explain something like Hatchet Two, which didn't even make it through the weekend? And I don't care what the director says. There's no financial benefit to the theater to run something that's making eight hundred dollars a weekend. Right. <laughs> I don't care if uh, well, he, don't he think thinks it was... it's some conspiracy about. I, I read. I did the. I did the math, and if if it costs two thousand dollars to run the theater, and you made eight hundred gross, there's no sense in keeping it running. It's not working. I think that has to do with maybe what it takes to get to put something out in theaters. I, I, I think a lot of people didn't even know that Hatchet Two was in theaters. And that's the inherent problem. I think the decision to go theatrical was made quickly, and there wasn't, you know, this long, extended sort of ramp-up campaign to say uh, Hatchet Two in theaters. Well, I mean, but there was a supposed like heavy Twitter campaign, and everyone was into it, and all this stuff. And like, what, what is what does heavy Twitter mean? And I don't even. But know, that's what know. I don't. That's what I don't. <laughs> I don't know what that means either, because I don't yeah. know. What, Twitter doesn't mean that people want to see your movie. When the guy who made that political movie came out like a month ago, the very slanted conservative movie called "I Want Your Money." Um, mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about. I have not seen it. Okay. Well, nobody saw it. And a bunch of Tea Party organizations bought a bunch of tickets. And that was most of the gross for that weekend. And he thought that there was some conspiracy. He said he didn't show it to critics because we're all liberal and we all hate everything and, you know, et cetera. Which, you know, is a good attitude to put out because people will eventually review it anyway. (laughs) But then he complained about that. You know, oh, these liberal critics found the movie and reviewed it. Well, seven people reviewed (laughs) it. Seven people on Rotten Tomatoes is nothing. Um, That means you didn't do a good job (laughs) putting your movie out there is what it means. I mean... What I found with my uh, first pass effort with Four Lions, mm-hmm. distributing Four Lions, was that it is exceptionally hard to break out and uh, get into just general public's awareness that this is in fact even a movie, let alone a movie that you want to see. Right. And it, it costs it costs so much money to do it, and for a small film, it's it's probably not worth the money to do it. You have to basically be willing to gamble up to probably a half a million dollars to get the level of 
even a tiny amount of advertising. I mean, how do you? I guess I was going to ask, how do you do it? Because you can't afford TV marketing at that, at, you know, at what you were spending on it. And I don't blame you. But you know, other than oh, I mean, you know, our, flying Chris around places to talk to to do intros, I don't know what else you can do. Yeah, I mean, we tried to get as many critics to watch it and like it as possible, mm-hmm. and we hoped that the unified voice of, of fans and critics was uh, going to get us somewhere. You know, and I think we were we were really willing to reinvest if on the opening weekend we did better than we did, but we just did okay. We did pretty well. We did good in New York, and we did good in Austin, and we did just okay everywhere else. Right. That's been the story of the film. So, uh, I don't know. It, it was... I don't think it's necessarily... I, I don't consider our, our efforts a failure on Four Lions well, because I think we did get a lot of awareness. We got a lot of reviews and right. we got a lot of positive and partially the, the, the main thing is you didn't put a piece of shit out there, which is very easy to do. Right. You actually put out a good movie that is interesting and worthy of talking about, and that's why it's more frustrating that it didn't do more business. Well, I think there's still business to be had. I think that the, the expanding VOD market is, is very interesting. And I, I'll be curious to see what happens because I, I, I think we did get into the fan consciousness, somebody that's up on movie blogs, and I think they know about the movie in large measure, but, uh, but again, we there also, was never the... I, and I'm part of that, but I also write for newspapers. I saw for free. So, no, no, but you, but it's, it's your voice and the voice of others. That It's more your readers and the readers of everybody that's writing online. That I think we've established a certain level of awareness that will, I think, pay off on the longer tail of VOD and DVD. Right. Uh, it's just theatrical is kind of a hard animal, but I think we achieved one of the goals of what we were trying to do, which was to get a certain level of awareness about the film. Until the ride is done, until we release it on DVD and VOD, then we won't know exactly how it how it stacks up and what what money was made or lost. Right. No. No. I'm not, I'm not even like you know gauging your your accounting measures or anything like that. I just mm-hmm. I go to a festival, you know, local, and you know, granted, people in mm-hmm. Philadelphia are not really impressed with anything or putting it. They're not a type to put in an effort to do anything either. And I'm not saying that as a negative in terms of like something nobody ever said before. I'm sure it's an observation lots of people have had. But in the sense that you I go to these festivals and, you know, half the people there are critics and the other half have like a, a pass for the whole festival. And I don't know how you sell, say, a movie like A Horrible Way to Die. Um, which I enjoyed for what it was, but I could not imagine anyone putting out ten or twelve dollars to go see it. And I don't know how you get the information out there and I don't know if there's going to be an audience in the future, especially in a bad economy, and how festivals will keep up, and whether that trickles down to you as well as sort of a niche product. So what's the question there exactly? I don't know. I'm just jerking off all over myself, obviously. <laughs> I, I, uh, horrible Way to Die is an interesting example, because I, I tend to agree. It, it doesn't feel very commercial to me. Right. You know, and... If anything, it's going to be... Uh, I mean, it got picked up by somebody, right? Did IFC buy it? I don't know. Somebody, but somebody but IFC it. is a pit, and I don't think necessarily that means anything. I, well, I think that be, for a movie like that, they're definitely not... I mean, I, I, I can't imagine that they would go out with it theatrically either because it doesn't, doesn't seem to make sense, but it might be... They might make revenue on it a little bit, a small bit of revenue as a VOD title. People are curious. I think there's some people in there that are part of the, the Mumblecore scene that have a little bit of awareness and, and following, and, you know, who knows? I mean, you know what, though? The, the, pro- feels like- the producer wasn't all, that fav- wasn't all that favorable about the movie, even during the Q&A. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I, you know, he was, like, basically talking, yeah, the director couldn't be here. He's off shooting a porn, and I'm not kidding. Wow. 
Really? <laughs> yeah. Like like a BDSM type thing with one of the actors. I think it's the actor who can't get it up, but then it turns out like he that guy's a director, I guess. Um, okay. And he and he couldn't, you know, he can't get it up, but then he also turns out to be like one of the killers at the end. You may not remember any of it. I can, you know, well, I can recently I mean, enough. There's, uh, there's the remember there's that like the twist out of nowhere. Rehab. Yeah, yeah, they're on. They're in rehab, and he asks her out on a date, and they go out, and then they have sex, but he can't get it up. And then, of course, you know that sort of represents the fact that he's impotent in some sense, also emotionally, and you know other options. And that's why it's supposed to make sense. I don't know how much sense it makes. I didn't see it coming, certainly. I didn't see it coming either, no. <laughs> but a movie like, you know, I, I've had discussions with other directors who've sold their movies to IFC and have said that that means that it's not going anywhere, that it just goes into the video-on-demand pit without any advertising. I mean, there's obviously tiers within the IFC catalog, right? So there's, there's plenty of movies that they believe in. You know, uh, Human Centipede was one where they definitely believed in. They definitely pushed it out there hard uh, from the beginning, and that uh, works. But they are picking up titles for the VOD inventory and to, to have a large catalog of independent films. So, But, but they're not promoting them, so how would anyone know like, to put down 6 or $7 for whatever it is? Well, I mean, how how do you promote? Uh, maybe we're back to that same question again. No, I don't I mean, even know. How much money do you want to... Directors yeah. have said to me, hey, should I sell it to this person? And I said, well, you know, this is where the money is. If you're going to get only money on the back end from video on demand and you've got to put up $1,000 just to provide them the print because you've got to pay someone 800 to make closed captioning and you have a movie that nobody's ever heard of with nobody and it doesn't matter if it's any good, how are you going to make money? Even in that model. Well, that's not a very good model, I guess. Uh, but there, there, I mean, there are filmmakers that do believe in their film and do believe that they can find an audience themselves with their own promotion and they just need the outlet to have the revenue stream even on the back end. But I think most of those, you know, in this day and age, just given what I know about the market, are probably a tad bit delusional about their chances. Yeah, the number of breakout successes like Anvil so few. And that was more of a rooting for them sort of thing. I mean, I don't... Well, I mean, I bring it up only because it didn't find a home and it didn't find a sale for a long time and the director and the producing team went ahead and did it themselves and put it out on the road and continued to build buzz and awareness until they found a sale that was, you, a, that was what they wanted. Do you think they were helped or hurt by the fact that the movie looks like a parody and one of the characters is Rob Reiner? <laughs> I mean, they're definitely helped by the parallels to, uh, to the movie you're referencing, for sure. I mean, and they're helped by the inherent comedy. And, if they're, you know, they're helped by the same thing that we were talking about with uh, Best Worst Movie. They're helped by the ineptitude of Anvil and the kind of the stupidity of Anvil. But they're so damn charming. You just you, you end up rooting for them and loving them in a weird way. And so like, you can kind of lump that into... Right, because I, uh, I compare it to something like category. some kind of monster which I thought was fascinating, but not for the right reasons, perhaps. Not the way they intended to. I thought it was, like, the best example of how to portray mediocrity that I've ever seen. Like, how does a soulless, mediocre product get out? Like, what are the creative meetings like? Well, the therapist isn't on them. That's how they get out. I don't know if you've seen some kind of monster. I have. I found it really... I, I mean, I, it didn't... I don't know what the intention of the band was uh, in making that movie, mm -hmm. but my, it was it was fascinating in that it was a, a train wreck of a, of a, a group of friends, and it was I, I just didn't I didn't like the characters, I, and I was fascinated by the, the egos and the, the therapy and the kind of just the awfulness of the whole situation. Yeah, but at the same time, I don't know how much of it was intentional from Brusinovsky's point of view. 
Like, I don't know what he was trying to do. I don't either. That's what's weird. It feels like <laughs> it feels like you're supposed to find more empathy with the band or, or just kind of root for them, but you're not, yeah. really. And it's not just from being spoiled millionaires. It's like, because their heart's so not in it. Yeah, yeah one exactly. Of how long do you see Fantastic Fest as as a model for future stuff, or you've hit you're gonna you know hit the apex at some point? I mean, obviously you can't say, oh no, it's a failure. But in the sense that, how do you continue that enthusiasm? Because I can't imagine Sundance is going to last that much longer because there aren't a lot of purchases there anymore because nobody can afford to put them out. How do you continue to sort of reinvent it if, in in a sense, you're showing off these movies for a devoted crowd who can't help but dwindle? Because there's there's no way to you've got to reach more people at some point, and the only way to do that is by you know hitting the mainstream with at least one or two of these movies, and they tend not to. Well, um, am I asking I mean, these, like what, ridiculously it, complicated questions that that are almost rhetorical? <laughs> well, it speaks to what's what's the point of Fantastic Fest in the first place, and I I, I think from my perspective we're. we're I have, a, I have a few different jobs at Fantastic Fest. Mm-hmm. One is just how we started off. And the, the very first thing we were trying to do was just bring cool genre movies to fans. That's, you know, that's easy. We're going to continue to do that because well, there's no lack of them at this point. Right. I don't think, I don't see it trailing off that much. And what we like to do is we like to look foreign. We're 75% foreign films for the most part. There's no quota or anything like that. Well, how do you, the, the, that, that new movement of Japanese films that are pre-sold... Is a little dispiriting. Like, I enjoyed Machine Girl and Tokyo Gore Police, but Robo Gage seem like they weren't even trying. Um, <laughs> and, like, it's just like yeah, well, throwing the, together stuff. Those guys are interesting, but I do want them to have a little bit more depth to their subject material. They're, they're accomplished in what they're doing, but they're now kind of, seem like they were they are starting to do a little bit of the same thing and I'd love to see them evolve as filmmakers you know, use some of that wackiness but I mean they're, one of their good buddies is uh, Simon Sono who every single movie seems to just blow me out of the water right and, I'm, a, I'm, a big, uh, I'm a big fan of his too Suicide Club is, should get more acclaim I wish that for uh, Love Exposure would get some sort of distribution here but I guess it's never yeah. going to right I don't know I mean that's Love Exposure is one of those ones that's on our list for possible, you know, titles we, we love, we fell in love with, and we're disappointed that it never, never went anywhere. So it's, you know, it's is it just kind down, of a, is uh, it just down to length? I mean, is that the problem? I don't know why people didn't pick it up. You know, I, I have no idea what the decisions were. I think length is an issue. It's, it's an issue on VOD. I guess the buyers didn't like it as much as I liked it. And didn't see, you know, didn't see the audience. But he's a he's a great voice. So I mean, I went on a tangent on him based on the Iguchi and the Nishimura, you know. But they're, but they're they're partners. They're they're friends. All of them worked and moved to make movies together. But Sono's definitely rising in stature with every movie that he makes. Well, he's he's um, trying to do something. He isn't just playing around. Yeah. I mean, that's I think that's the right. major difference is that there's something going on when you're watching his movies. There's subtext. It's not just splatter. I guess what I was saying initially was one of the goals of Fantastic Fest is to, is to celebrate movies like, like Sono. And we're, we're not having a difficult time in finding, you know, exceptional movies that are great movies, too. That's our, that's our core. It's kind of movies that work in the genre element that are fascinating films that are not themselves, not just kind of tawdry exploitation. So we'll continue on that path forever with Fantastic Fest as long as it continues to go. And then the other was to find opportunities for filmmakers within the industry. So like making sure we cater enough to industry and bring in enough filmmakers and bring them together and try to find opportunities for them. And the other, I guess, is the flip side of that coin is 
So, I mean, I don't see us changing that much or reinventing ourselves. I think with each year, those those objectives are the same. You know, maybe the parties will get more extravagant. Maybe we'll bring in bigger guests, more guests. Uh, I'm not really looking to to tweak the model that much. I like the tone that we've created with the festival. And, you know, for the foreseeable future, that's just the plan, is we're going to continue on this path and spend the year looking wherever we can to find interesting films to, to premiere. I guess part of what I, the line of questioning, and I always try to be objective within my negativity, such a thing as possible, is the, the sort of um, slavish hyperbole often used by a number of people who are accredited as critics who who go to a lot of these places and, and, and try to discover their movie without actually looking at analysis and just throwing hyperbole at it. And the frustrating part for me, I, you know, it's not, oh, I don't get to go because I can't afford it. Well, I know the reasons these people can fly out to various festivals. It's because they're being paid by corporations. So it seems weird in that sense. Like a lot of these larger blog sites are run by corporations who can't afford to send them out. And the, I guess the worry for me is that there will be a merging in the same way that there's, a, there's the, the fear of the frat boy taking over nerd culture. So the fear would be that there well, be you know, too you know, much... You know that of, cinem- Cinematical is basically run by Time Warner, right? Yes. I mean, movie phone is not merged into it. Yeah, so Cinematical has gone through a shift, and it's actually causing some heartache with the trick, because I think the writers don't understand what the direction is. The former Cinematical writers and are feeling a little confused and also uh, overproduced now, you know, getting get, having to get approvals when they haven't had to get approvals in the past. No, um, but in the notion of so. uh, festivals catering to certain websites that they know will give stuff they're not screening normally, I mean, I, I will still always think of the G.I. Joe incident, but which is not screened for critics normally, and that's fine, I didn't need to see it, but they flew in a number of critics that they knew would be amenable to, and these are like the big name sites, and I'm trying not to name them because you know some of these people, so um, um, but, uh, you know since we're recording and everything, uh, you know I'm, I'm, I'm Fuck it, Harry Knowles, Kevin Ferracci, and and some other names who their tendency is to heighten certain types of things, and I guess are predictable in that sense enough for the studios to turn it into corporate marketing instead of actual analysis, thereby downgrading the value of real criticism. Or maybe that was just a long statement of self-indulgence on my part. Well, I mean, I think it's it's within the rights of the of PR teams that are hired to promote uh, GI Joe, for example. No, no, they're, they're not. They're not doing anything out. wrong because that's yeah. they're doing their job. The problem is that there's a model for it. That that certain places are so predictable that you know you can bring them in. And I mean, look, there's a guy who I make fun of, who I follow on Twitter, who reviews like, and he's a, it's a big, big site, and he and he must re, he must go to everything, but reviews two movies a month. The only time, thing I've ever retweeted of his is something where he said, "Why is Leonard Maltin always at my screenings?" Because it seemed to me his unawareness of how much of the studio teat he was sucking as to be part of that process where Leonard Maltin, who is a celebrity, is at every one of your screenings. Does that make sense? I guess it does. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. And I'm not trying to be like to you know. I'm not trying to like be a hater of some you know like these guys are successful, therefore they suck. The problem I have is that a lot of them are successful at the expense of what they're doing because they've stopped 
worrying about analysis, and now it's just about finding the thing, finding yeah, a new saw or whatever it is. I think it's it's as simple as maybe I mean, maybe some of the critics you're talking about uh, were flown into GI Joe to go back to that example because the studio knew that they would be the most appreciative of that film. But I think that within their within their voice and within their context, they're still. That's, maybe they're predictable, but that's just they are still. I think that they're still passionate about what they like and they dislike. It's just that you know maybe their likes and dislikes aren't necessarily aligning with yours. I don't like GI Joe at all. I, I I hated the movie, but I could see how it may hit the right notes for certain people if that's their. I'm not even. Medic. I'm not even debating that. I've never seen it. It's not yeah. for me. And if I never see it, it's not a big deal. It's not like something like on my right. list that I've got to fill in. But in the sense that you you are a mark. I mean, I think I said this to someone in the the online film critic society. I said it, it was about this GI Joe thing. I said that if I look around and I see Harry Knowles and I see Devin Faraci and I see Leonard Maltin and I see some of these other people, like the film school rejects people or first showing people. And I don't know why I'm there. Then I'm the mark. <laughs> uh, but but really, does that necessarily affect or cloud your judgments? I mean, there's uh... well, everything can't help but cloud your judgment. There's not, there, you can you can be as objective as you want. You have to be objective within your subjectivity. That's sort of the job of a critic, right? You've got to create a point of view. But you're still being subjective, but you're being honest and, and, and not getting your, trying not to let your prejudices get in the way. And if they do, you state what your prejudices are. But, you know, certainly a, a setting and a circumstance can change your opinion on a film to a certain extent. There can be hype and excitement built up just from ballyhoo that you, you know, your mind's in a, a receptive state to take something that's big and bold and really like it if it's presented, if it's done with all sorts of fireworks, blitz, and glamour. That's a, a clouding of judgment that happens where you might not have the same reaction by watching the exact same movie on your laptop with headphones and still fully absorbing yourself into it, but without all the, the values surrounding it. And I, don't, I have no idea what the G.I. Joe chunk it was, but I would have to imagine it was filled with glamour and glitz and impeccable presentation and just the overall hoopla uh, to kind of mask the fact that it's not a great movie and so maybe and I don't even know who liked it and who didn't like it but I could see how your review could potentially be almost a review of the entire experience mm -hmm. and then the, you know that's a willful veiling by the, the PR team to mask the movie that may not be that great in this great experience with the hope that the experience gets reviewed but I'll go one layer back and like how that how that goes you know how the, the fear of with success of Fantastic Fests, you know what happens to the face of it and the texture of it. And I, I think from from the beginning we've 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 always championed really small movies and foreign movies and weird movies and hard movies to swallow. While at the same time, you know, in year one we had Zathura with John Favreau, mm -hmm. and we've always tried to get big movies like Zombie Lands and yeah, um, but you're you know, you're you're not like in those cases. Neither of those are big, big films. Zathura is sort of sneakily good in a way. Like you're not even expecting it. You're just having you. You can't help but go in with low expectations for it. And it isn't a noise movie that happens to be noisy. Right. Well, I, I think the, the the point is is there's going to be um, pressure 
if the if the festival grows mm-hmm. from the studios and the people that have prepackaged movies that want to foist them onto the fanboy public at Fantastic Fest if they view it as a viable how do you not uh, launching pad. How do you not become Comic Con? I guess is what the I think it's because I, in, you know, I'm still I'm still serving as the creative director and the head programmer of Fantastic Fest, and I think it's up to me to make sure that we still curate what we want to curate. That we say no to movies. We definitely say no still now. I mean, 95 percent of the time is we'll for a big studio movie, it has to play for us before the festival, and if we like it then we'll program it. If we don't like it, then we'll say we don't like it. We don't think that we can program this. And as long as you keep your sense about you on that on that level, then I don't think it's that hard to keep your, your rudder in the water and your barometer straight. I don't think, and maybe it's, maybe it's just because I'm too close, but I don't think I, my sensibilities have changed. I still get a sick, perverse joy in watching an audience squirm at, at something, and I like to put an audience into a, a discomfort zone. So we're going to try to play some pretty outrageous movies whenever we can, and then we're also going to try to program a, a series of movies that traditional fanboys just going to absolutely hate, because it's too slow or quiet or maybe cerebral, if you will, for a genre film. I don't know, those are still part of our, you know, we don't really have a mission statement, but it's, I think they're part of our mission statement in a way to, to have a very diverse palette of interesting films in the genre spectrum. Uh, I hope I'm not cornering you with these sorts of questions. I'm trying to be... No, no. I'm trying to walk my way around the, the notion of, without putting you in a corner and going, well, I don't like this person, and this is why. Don't you agree? I don't want to do that. That's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something that... It, it, the connection there with me is something that happened to me when it was it was on a rather large website which i have mentioned previously where i said to these these guys and one of whom i knew but i didn't i wasn't like out and out here you know saying hey this is me you guys are interviewing do you know peter siegel the director yeah. and he was promoting get smart at the time and it was the, like the worst softball interview like it was just so suck up and i said you know you, you guys are not being paid enough where you have to suck up to peter siegel and I know you're honored to get this, you know, this is a get. You get to talk to this guy. But even if you think he makes interesting movies, I don't think he thinks he makes interesting movies. Ask, like, a real question. And then some of the people who support the site got on my case for not being, like, what do I want? You know, what, what am I trying to get out of this? Well, you know, what you're saying is so far out of the mainstream. And you're not part of the process. You're not, and I'm thinking, the whole point is that a critic is, is, is supposed to be elitist. That's the whole idea. We're supposed to... <laughs> we're supposed to know better. We, we are self-proclaimed experts who have seen enough movies where we can determine what is trite and what isn't and why. And to be part of the process is problematic. That's what, that's what Warren Beatty did to Pauline Kael to make sure she wasn't part of the process, to make sure she couldn't say anything anymore, was give her a contract at Paramount. <laughs> and if, if, if you catch yourself in that position where you are part of the process, that's, a, that's an issue. Because you're not fighting the process, and you're not ignoring it, but you're not accepting it either. Yeah, I mean, it's by your statements there, though, it's... It, it, I mean, I feel like you could potentially err on the other side because you don't necessarily want to infuriate your interview subject, right? So, I mean, there could be a fine line where questions are... Am I I crossing that line? 
No, 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 not at all with me. But I'm just, I'm just thinking about you know what the role, what the role is. I, I think the role would be to to formulate a thought-provoking interview with questions that you know it's not the same questions like, oh, what are you working on next? You know, blah blah blah. What was well, your inspiration? To like, give you an idea, that yeah. interview um, was exactly what you just described. <laughs> that's, that's why I was like, I'm like, Jesus Christ, not only are you asking questions we could have, like, watched the EPK to figure out. Like, an easy one. Uh, you use the same gag in uh, My Fellow Americans that you did in, in Get Smart. Why? You did. You used the yeah. same gag with, the, the, uh, with, like, the penis-shaped thing poking through a windshield. I'm not saying you have to, like, you know, get on everyone's case. Or you have to take everyone to task. But it seems that once you become part of this process then you're not you're no longer objective you've lost your subjective objectivity or whatever it is that i'm describing and what i'm i would would have to imagine that most people actually would prefer an interview that's a little bit more uh, outside the room you know after taking chris morris on on tour for you know i was i was in the room for maybe 30 or 40 interviews Mm -hmm. and you know most of them were kind of kind of the same thing and he he doesn't mind reciting his speech to the same people because it's part of his job to promote the film. Well, should, I, same speech should and, I take pride yeah. in the fact that he seemed to be amused by what I was asking him? Uh, yes, you should. Because yeah, okay. I think... But he's, he's actually kind of a... Uh, he can get really upset if people uh, take the wrong... You know, take a path that's maybe not understanding the, the subject material enough or if people dwell and, you know, remain fixated on things that he worked on 20 years ago mm-hmm. and was trying to promote the, the new work. You know, those, are, those are the two buttons that I saw him react to. But it was more, that seemed more out of potentially ignorance than anything else that he was, that he was reacting to. But I don't know. I, I only bring it up because it, it sounded like you were taking a, a, a tactic that, that part of the role of the journalist was to you know, ask the, the hard-hitting questions, and you know, but you know, I mean, we're talking about a subject of you know making trivia, if you will. I mean, movies aren't that horrifically important, right? I mean, that's the, the other thing. That's, thing. So, that, that's the other uh, part of it is that realizing that they're not important, and when people take them so seriously, I mean, I got a, a lot of flack for an interview I did with a guy who wrote "Going the Distance." Mm-hmm. Do you know that movie? I haven't seen "Going the Distance." What, that's what is what is going the distance? It's with Drew Barrymore and Justin Long. Came out a couple months ago. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. No, right, I, I remember the poster. Yeah, it escapes my, my vision. <laughs> You're not wrong. I thought it was the worst movie of the year. And I, and I say that knowing that it's an innocuous romantic comedy. There were so many details that aggravated me and infuriated me that I hated virtually everything about it. And I exploded as soon as I left the screening room and wrote, went to the library and wrote 2,100 words about why I hated everything. And I just was so detailed about all these little things. And the only reason I was there in the first place is because we were told we'd be able to interview the director. Well, it didn't pan out, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to read the script because I understand this was on the blacklist. And there's no way that this movie that I'm watching now is the same movie that was on the blacklist. There's no way. And I read the script, and it's a totally different movie. The resemblance is the title, that it's about a long-distance relationship, and some of the character names are the same. And other than that, none of the funny stuff is that was in the script is in the movie. They changed everything for the worse. And I asked, you know, I went into the interview, and the interview went on for a long time, which I was surprised, because one of the second things I said was, I'm going to let you know now, um, up front, because I don't sandbag people, that I thought, you're, I thought Going the Distance was the worst movie of the year, but I liked your script. 
And I knew that he, as a first-time screenwriter or produced screenwriter, working for a studio, could not come out against the movie. I knew that. Yeah. But I asked questions about the changes, and I was very specific. And I went through each of my problems and what was in his original screenplay, and if he knew what the changes were, how much of it was a part of, all that stuff. And people have read it, and, well, including the writer, have, li- have listened to the podcast and gotten upset because they thought I was hammering him too much, or what, which I admitted, like, hey, maybe I'm being a little too hard on him. But at the same time, they were upset that I would upset other PR people and not get other future interviews. And it was a very strange objection. There were articles written about me doing that interview. because, And I don't know why, because I praised, I praised the script for what it is. It's fine. The movie is awful and off the shelf. But it was, it was weird to be put in a position where essentially doing my job about something that's terribly unimportant, like a movie, a romantic comedy, a studio romantic comedy, by a studio that no longer exists. It's a new line film. Was met with such vitriol. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out where, you know, the misplaced vitriol. Like, what, where does that come from? Are we all, are we all cliched corporate slaves where we worry about what PR people think? And how yeah, does this, I mean, uh, how does this infect the overall film festival thing in turning, say, Comic Con from what was much more ambitious and pure into what it is now, which is a studio wankfest? But what? Uh, um, ambitious and pure about uh, Comic-Con in the old days because to me Comic-Con in the old days was about the trade floor almost exclusively yes but I can understand that that is a very specific thing and then it somehow became something else and I don't mind it became something else but in the sense that now it's the place where they try to show all of the really big budget movies clips. And if there's not something ready, then it's a big brouhaha and everyone gets upset. And, and I'm thinking, why does it matter? Why not just wait until it's finished? Or why do we need to debate whatever detail was in the original comic? And, and this is, of course, what they're counting on because they spent $200 million making and promoting this. So I'm not suggesting that they went out, went at it without you know monetary gain in their mind but in the sense that it wasn't so cynical. Yeah, but I mean, so I've heard people, you know, talk about this too, about, you know, Comic-Con jumping a shark. Comic-Con, you know, it's not what it initially set out to be. Or maybe not, it's my idealized version. Sure. It's Maybe it's an idealized version, but it's just like, that it became a corporate thing is dispiriting. Yes, but I don't think it was ever an entity that had a, a mission, if you will. You know, I mean, that it was a large collection, a trade floor where people could buy comics. Mm-hmm is what it was, right? And there, there was celebrities where you could get autographs, and that's what it was. It was a convention. It, it wasn't ever pure, in my opinion. Yeah. So the fact that big studios have exploited the opportunity and exploded the attendance of Comic-Con doesn't really change it, because you can still go there and just buy a shitload of comic books and get really rare stuff, just like you used to be able to. It's just that it just so happens there's 100,000 Twilight fans there, too. I don't think it's necessarily that there's Twilight fans there has changed from what the mission was for uh, Comic-Con in the first place. I don't know. I'm not that down on Comic-Con, really. I think it's, it's a celebration of commerce. And it's a celebration of all sorts of different fandoms to the extreme. And it still 
still kind of is. There's fans that are super diehard and want to see that first 15 minutes of Tron and you know, kind of ruin the experience for yourself because they, they're that obsessed. And it's just gigantic and swollen, but it, it's still serving the same purpose in a way. You're just jealous because they make more money. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm trying to defend Comic-Con in I, a way. I, I, I know, I'm just... <laughs> I'm being the people uh, who criticize me for the same thing, who's like, you're interviewing yeah. someone, and if you ask a negative question, it's because you're jealous of them. Really? <laughs> I, I, get, I get that you're, you're, you're defending it, and, and I don't know why anyone would want to see the first 15 minutes of Tron. What's funny to me, I saw Tron when I was four years old. It's the first movie I remember in the theater. I mean, I'm sure I saw like Bambi and other things before, but I just specifically remember the Tron experience. And even then, I kind of sense it. And when you watch it at home, it's pretty bad. But it's, it's in a good way, though. It's cheesy and silly, and it's a half-hearted Star Wars ripoff with some interesting effects. And, you know... It was important to me at the time. When no, I and, I, I and it, was, it was... Yeah, it was to me, too. And when, when, when they uh, remastered it, and, like, you know, they, they had a couple screenings in New York, I went with my girlfriend, I had a great time. I'm totally aware it's terrible. I don't care. But the notion that it's grown into this thing where people think of it, take it very seriously, is strange to me. I know, you know, fine if they want to, but, you know, let's watch... You know, when I first watched the, the first movie on DVD, I felt like it was mm-hmm. cheating. I felt like the mo- it looked too good. Like, I have to go back to watching a Panascan VHS for this to look cool. <laughs> well, I'm actually kind of fascinated by how Disney has invested in the Tron legacy, kind of reboot or whatever it is, or, re- uh, you know, sequel, I guess is technically a sequel. Yeah, considering um, the first is such a failure. Yeah, it's a, it's a failure, and I never thought that the cult was that big. And I no. think I've always thought that the cult was really confined to the super nerds and never, never really crossed over to the frat audience if we're defining it by the, by those terms and the, from, from this discussion. But so it's fascinating that they're going so big and so monumental with it. I, so I still can't decide whether this is going to be the biggest failure in movie history or just the, the, the movie that makes more money than, than Avatar because it's going to be spectacular. I, I have no earthly idea. Well, I think they're hurting themselves with a the 3D, but fine. Because if you want, if you want to, no, no, no. Financially, it's going to help. Visually, it's not because it makes everything so muddy looking. I think it depends on the 3D presentation. But since most of the 3D presentation is underlit in America, then yes, you're probably correct. <laughs> well, I, you know, I haven't really seen a good one, and I'll say that uh, I did. I've never seen Avatar. It seemed like homework to me. They screened it when I had just had hernia surgery, so I couldn't go. But I've had it and just never watched it because I can't justify, you know, three hours of homework with no benefit at the end. Yeah. And no doubt in 2D. But Jackass 3D was the closest I've seen to good 3D in the last <laughs> year and a half of using it. When they decided to use it, yeah, it was great. Like, yeah, that opening slow motion sequence in 3D, I thought was spectacular. Even some of the puke uh, flying in puke. I mean, I was okay yes. with that. Yeah, but yes, in terms yeah. of depth and all that stuff, but Jackass does not need to be shot well to work, and they ruined all the other movies I saw. Three, you know, take the glasses off, and you you could see that the movie actually looks fine in two D at some at certain times. Certainly, that happened during Clash of the Titans. It's it is weird for them to throw all this money, and I don't know does that help or hurt in the long run about like at home because three D doesn't look very good at home. 
Is that going to hurt or help? Um, I don't even know. I mean, I don't know if this is going to happen, but it does feel like uh, the the move to HD television sets at home, you know, could theoretically give way to 3D television sets at home, sort of the planned obsolescence of the home entertainment industry. Yeah, I don't, I don't see the America rushing out to need to buy a 3D television set so they can watch Avatar and Tron at home. So I would say it potentially might hurt the home market, but it's hard to say. I'm, and I'm not even really opposed to BitTorrent, you know, because, you know, with Four Lions, mm -hmm. the problem isn't that people are choosing to BitTorrent the movie as opposed to go out and see it theatrically. Mm -hmm. The problem is to gain awareness for the film. Right. So BitTorrent helps for an individual. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think that, that would help if there was so. a Blu-ray out so people could see it and tell other people. I think that I think in certain cases that it helps, but you know, how is someone supposed to see Skate Town USA without BitTorrent? Yes. Son, Son of Hitler? How is that possible? You, do you know that one? I, I don't know Son of Hitler, but I like the title. Um, that's with uh, Bud Court and Pierre Cushing, and it's a slapstick parody sort of thing where Bud Court is sort of is, is Hitler's son, but doesn't know it, and he's an idiot. And Peter Cushing runs a group called Nine which is like national blah 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 but basically they're neo-nazis they want to bring Willie Hitler which is Court's um, character to the forefront to lead them into the promised land basically and it's unbelievably wrong-headed like playing your Fuhrer's face over real Hitler footage is problematic it's very odd and it's directed by Rodney Amatou Amatou something like that I can't remember but he made Garbage Pail Kids he made The Statue he made a lot of unwatchable sex comedies he made uh, the sequel to What's New Pussycat the one with Ian McShane do you know that one? I haven't seen it no Pussycat Pussycat I Love You basically he's incompetent and Son of Hitler is pretty fantastically incompetent and wrongheaded <laughs> And to the point where it was supposed to come out in 1978 and just did not. And someone had a print and then recorded like a cam version. And that's the version that went on on VHS tape to various bootleggers, I guess. Um, that's how I got it. But it's a movie that Bud Court, after it was finished, refused to discuss it, even though you can find articles where he's promoting it in Playboy like a year beforehand. But he won't discuss it at all. Like he... You know, denies existence and the fact that it came out and we can't see the day the clown cried is some big shame i guess i, I you know is someone ever going to put that kind of thing out i don't know i don't even know where i was going in the conversation but now you listen to what son of hitler is right now i do uh, i'm gonna put it on my list <laughs> uh, that, because i'm an ironic white boy that no you're you're uh, and i love hitler jokes the, exactly the Bodyguard.